Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on His side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to, we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda. A voice in the desert. Now, here's Crystal Heath. Hello, Las Vegas. I'm Crystal Heath. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church. Happy Thursday, one and all. I am Crystal Heath. This is The Frittle Show, and I am excited about our program today. We have Jenna Ellis, who is uh, who is. Uh, the director of public policy over at James uh, Dr. Dobson's Family Talk organization. She's going to be joining us l- just a little while later in the program to talk about the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision that the Supreme Court issued, as well as to discuss what happened in North Korea with President Trump and Kim Jong-un and what that means and how it affects us or, or if it doesn't affect us and all that good stuff. But I appreciate you taking the time to tune in today. We have lots to cover. We are going to start with the Supreme Court allowing Ohio and other states to vo- uh, to purge rather their voter records. The Supreme Court has decided that this is not a problem, that it does not violate anyone's constitutional rights, and this is something that states should be allowed to do. Now, the AP reported uh, that states can target people who haven't cast ballots in a while in an effort to purge their vo- voting rules by a 5 to 4 vote that split conservative and liberal justices. So the court rejected arguments in a case from Ohio that the practice of purging voter uh, rolls violates a federal law. There's a handful of other states that also use voter inactivity uh, to trigger processes to eventually remove voters from uh, voting rolls, but Ohio is uh, is more aggressive, if you will. In the process, and I'll explain to you what that aggression is in just a second, but Justice Samuel Alito said that for the court that Ohio is complying with the 1993 National Voter Registration Act. He was joined uh, by his four conservative colleagues in an opinion that drew praise from Republican officials and conservative scholars. Uh, President Donald Trump hailed the ruling from Singapore, uh, tweeting, just won a big Supreme Court decision on voting. Great news. Of course, the four liberal justices dissented and civil rights groups and some Democrats warned that more Republican-led states could enact voter purges similar to Ohio. Now, of course, Ohio is a swing state, so that's why you know people are concerned about people not being able to vote in Ohio and the impact that might have specifically on presidential uh, elections. But... Here's the thing. Ohio's drastic voter purging (laughs) is really not that drastic because Ohio, their goal is to keep their voter rolls and voting records in good shape by removing people who have moved or who have died. And that's something that there are there are several states that do this, but Ohio has what many have called an aggressive approach to doing this. I Personally, I don't think that it's all that aggressive, and I'll explain that to you in a minute. But this is why this co- case went to the Supreme Court, because people were mad because they said, this, is, this isn't fair, this is outrageous, this does not give us a chance. Here's what Ohio does. Ohio looks at two things. 
Ohio looks at voter inactivity over six years, encompassing three federal elections and the failure to return a notification postcard, which is sent after your first missed election, asking people to confirm that they have not moved so that they can continue to be eligible to vote at that address. Voters who return the card or show up to vote over the next four years after they receive it remain registered. If they do nothing, their names will eventually be removed from the list of registered voters. Now, the opponents in this case that were saying that this was not acceptable uh, say that um, this voter registration law is, 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 or this voter registration process is, uh, is penalizing someone, essentially. Um, it's hinging on, on, on removing someone from the voting rolls by reason of the person's failure to vote. But Alito said that two factors show that Ohio does not strike any registrant solely by reason of the failure to vote. Um, so let's, let's look at this for a minute. So Ohio looks at someone who hasn't voted in six years, who hasn't returned a card that says, hey, yeah, I still live here. I just, you know, haven't wanted to vote in the last three federal elections. And after they are sent the card, um, if they return the card or show up to vote over the next four years, they remain registered. And people are like, well, this voter registration roll purges stuff is, is, is meddling with our rights. Okay, well, let's discuss that. Let's discuss this for just a minute. Or maybe like five or six. Do dead people have the right to vote? I'm going to go with no on that one. Uh, do people who move to a different state and forget to notify their previous state's election bureau about said move so that they can remove them from the voter registration uh, records for that state, do they have a right to uh, do, does that happen? Do people move and like forget to tell the uh, the election election bureau from the previous place where they voted that oh by the way I'm not there anymore? Does that happen? Yes, all the time. I ask you this, Las Vegas, because most of you didn't grow up here. When you moved here from whatever state you moved from, did you contact the election election department from where you moved and say hey? I'm moving. Please remove my name from the voter rolls. Ooh. Mm. That's a thought, isn't it? Could there be even the slightest possibility of voter fraud because of individuals who move but are still having, oh, I don't know, say like a voter guide with a barcode that will enable them to vote still sent to their old address? I would argue that's a very real possibility. Could this moving enable people to vote in more than one state? Yes, they could. Are any of these things legal? No. Could they be stopped by this measure that Ohio is already using? Yes. And it's not like <laughs> it's not like Ohio says, "Oh, thou hast not voted in this primary election." 
Thou shaltest be purged. Goodbye. No! They they give you six years. If you don't vote in six years, and a six-year time span, you've got at least one major Senate race in your state, at least one major gubernatorial race in your state, and at least one presidential election in that time period. And if one of those, or shall I say all three of those, don't get you out to vote, like, I, you know, I understand if there's, like, a primary and the only thing we're voting for is a justice of the peace, and you're like, oh, I totally forgot that it was election day. I get that. But when you have three major elections, if that doesn't get you out to vote after the state has already sent you a notice saying, hey, are you still alive, essentially, then I, maybe, maybe you're not. Maybe you're just not around anymore. Maybe you've, uh, maybe you've moved your home or, or gone to your eternal home. I'm just, like, yeah, I'm sure that there are many people who just discard and throw away the postcard that they're sent and they don't even read it. But I highly doubt that someone would sit out every major election in a six-year period. And if they do, that's just, I... I don't even know. I guess I would call that a complete and total failure and disregard for personal responsibility on the part of the voter. Sure, we could blame the registered party for failing to energize them or failing to get out the base to vote, but ultimately, voting is an individual responsibility. You should exercise your right to vote, and if you're not exercising your right to vote, if you're not responding to the Election Bureau's efforts to find out if you are still alive and living at that address, uh... (laughs) I really, I, th- I think that what Ohio is doing is a really good thing. I think that what Ohio has done with their voter, uh, re- uh, their voter rolls and keeping them uh, updated is something that shouldn't be penalized, but something that should probably be mirrored across the country. Because this is, this, uh, the easiest way for voter fraud to happen is when something like this happens. Somebody moves, somebody dies. And they're not removed from the rolls. And so, especially when there's no, hmm, when there's no voter ID law and you don't actually have to show your ID to vote, like literally, you, this is the only thing I don't like about the way Clark County does voting, okay? And I, I know, I understand the whole legal ramifications of it and everything, but literally I get mailed a booklet with a barcode on it. I carry the booklet with the barcode into the election department. They scan the barcode. I sign the thing. And that's it. Nobody asks if I am who I am. Nobody asks to see my ID. And I know that there are some safeguards in place, but do you see how if, if like, I move away and I don't let the county know that I move away and that booklet keeps getting mailed to that address, how that could be problematic? Do you see how if something happened and I... I I was to no longer be with us. I guess we wouldn't be us because I wouldn't be here. If I was to no longer be with you and I was no longer here and that booklet kept coming to that address, somebody could take that and invoke potentially. So I don't think that what Ohio is doing is a bad thing. In fact, I think it's a very uh, smart move on their part and I think it helps to keep their voter rolls clean and obviously to significantly cut down on voter fraud. And the Supreme Court seems to agree with me. I always like it when the Supreme Court agrees with me. Because it's just, it, you know, it just makes me feel verified in my, in my thoughts and opinions. 
So anyway, personally, I think this is a great move. I think this is a good move. I think this is a good decision, good opinion from the Supreme Court. I believe that what Ohio is doing helps maintain uh, electoral integrity in the whole election process and ultimately will lessen the possibility of, if not actual, uh, voter fraud as it has been shown to do. And that is my rant of the day. <laughs> We're going to stop ranting now and take a break. We're going to have just a little bit of music. When we return, Jenna Ellis, Director of Public Policy for Dr. Dames Dobson's Family Talk, is going to be joining us. She's just an incredible, uh, incredible lady with quite a resume. She writes for the Daily Wire. She writes for Washington Examiner. Uh, she writes for National Review online. She's been on Fox News, CNN. Like, she's... She is an incredible legal mind. She's going to join us in just a few minutes to discuss the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision as well as the events in North Korea from earlier, or excuse me, the events in Singapore from the Singapore summit with Kim Jong-un and President Trump earlier this week. So don't go away. We will return in just a few minutes. You're listening to KBXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas. And welcome back. You're listening to The Frittle Show on KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church here in Las Vegas. Today we have with us Jenna Ellis on the line. She is the Director of Public Policy for the James Dobson Family Institute, constitutional law attorney, and a contributor to the Washington Examiner, the Daily Wire, my personal favorite, and the Federalist. She is, you've probably seen her. She's been on Fox Business, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, all the national media, and of course, now that she's made it to us today, her career has peaked. I don't know where you go from here, Jenna. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you, and uh, yeah, absolutely, this is definitely the highlight. <laughs> I knew that it would be. Of <laughs> course, um, I appreciate you mentioning that. Yes, yes. Um, so, but we didn't have you here to talk about how fantastic your career will now be. Uh, we actually we're going to talk about some serious stuff today. Um, earlier this week, we saw President Trump meet with Kim Jong-un in, in uh, Singapore. And then last week, obviously, we had the Supreme Court ruling on the Masterpiece Cake Shop issue. want to touch on both of these issues with you here today. But let's start with the cake baking or not baking. And uh, and then we'll get to, to what happened in Singapore. So first off, we have the case of Jack Phillip, the baker who wouldn't bake the cake. And now the Supreme Court has officially said he doesn't have to, which obviously that's great news for him. But, you know, that said, there's been a lot of back and forth on both sides as to how this benefits them or doesn't benefit them or benefits the other side. And I think a lot of confusion because of that among our listeners at home who are hearing all of this, seeing all this in the media and saying, hey, this is great news. But then they're like, oh, maybe it's not great news. So that's where I want to start today because you had a fantastic piece in the Daily Wire last week. Uh, I think the headline was Masterpiece Cake Shop was Good Decision, uh, Bad Opinion. So let's start there with the good decision. What do you mean that it is a good decision? Can you define that for us a little bit? Yeah, so it was a good decision in that Jacksonville won, and the Supreme Court didn't say, no, we're going to compel speech from someone who uh, does not want to use their artistic skills and talents to participate in an event which was they fundamentally disagree. That is a good thing, and uh, this could have been much, much worse if the Supreme Court had decided, no, we're going to compel speech and we're going to not uh, protect the freedom of speech and free exercise of religion that we're mandated to uh, within the Constitution. So that was a good decision. But what I mean by bad opinion 
is that the opinion really just focused on the facts specific to Jack Phillips' case. And there were a lot of really good facts for Jack, uh, really mm. bad facts for the LGBT community, uh, for that couple specifically, and also the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. And so because the, the court, uh, through Justice Kennedy, focused specifically on how uh, hostile the commission was, how, um, how just overtly anti-religion uh, they treated him and made the decision on that basis alone, it's going to be really hard for future cases to use this as any kind of precedent unless there is some other kind of overt hostility from a government agent in their cases. And there is, I mean, in future people like my friend David French, who writes for National Review, um, a few other uh, constitutional scholars have, have said in the past since Masterpiece. Well, this is prolifically throughout a lot of the record that uh, there is overt hostility. But mm. whether that rises to the level of Masterpiece and whether or not uh, government commissions like the Colorado Civil Rights Commission will just continue to be sneakier from here on out, uh, that remains to be seen. They could just say, you know, we're denying uh, the, the Baker's, uh, Baker's claim and we're, we're saying you have to go and, uh, and bake the cake or do the flower arrangements or print the t-shirts, we're just not going to tell you why we are overtly hostile and put that on the record. So I think that the Supreme Court ultimately could have made a better decision on the constitutional merits and just said once and for all, freedom of speech and free exercise of religion in the context of public accommodation laws has to be preserved and protected, and there's no question about it. So Justice Thomas's uh, concurrence, actually, I wish had been the majority. Oh, yes. His concurrence was excellent. I read through it. I'd encourage everyone listening, if you haven't read Thomas's concurrence, you need to go and do that because it is so good. But honestly, he's usually the best, I think. Anyway, so, you know, huh, there is that aspect of it. So essentially what you're saying is, um, yes, this is good for Jack Phillips. Uh, it is a good decision. The problem is that because the court focused not so much on the on the religious freedom, I mean, they did. Oh, it's so hard to explain to where people, I think, can really wrap their heads around it. But the, the, what the court was essentially saying is because the lower court, for lack of a better term, was mean to you, uh, we're going we're gonna to let you go ahead and, and you don't have to bake the cake. But that doesn't really affect any potential future cases of this nature. They won't be able to say, well, because, you know, like you said, there won't be the precedent to where, no, we've already decided that it's against, if, if it violates someone's religious liberties, then I don't have to do this. We don't have that result uh, from this, from right. this and, opinion. And probably the, the best way to describe it would be a procedural difference versus a substantive difference. Oh, and there you I go. What I mean by that is that the, if it's a procedural element, that means that someone, however, the adjudicator, and in this case it wasn't a court, it is, it is a commission that is unelected, um, that doesn't even have to be mm. attorneys who sit on this commission. I mean, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission is just prolifically uh, sad. And I wrote another piece sure. in National Review, actually, series that go into that in more depth. And I definitely read those pieces because these commissions are in um, other states beyond Colorado. They're terrible. Um, they're not a good adjudicator. As they're not. Um, they're they're very biased. They're not impartial. But because they decided procedurally um, how to treat Jack, then that allowed Justice Kennedy to say, well, we're just going to focus on how the court treated you rather than actually get to what the, the controversy was, which is this clash of 
supposed freedoms, the, the public accommodation of this same-sex couple going in wanting to purchase the custom design versus uh, the baker's freedom of speech and free exercise of religion. The court didn't focus on that clash of merit because they had a procedural issue. Yeah, and so and, that's going to probably be saved for another date. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and because of because of what they chose to focus on, I think that's why we saw this essentially a landslide that we don't really see anymore on the Supreme Court in in most of these issues where it was seven to two. And you had said in your article that you were surprised that the ruling wasn't nine to zero. Right, and and the reason for that is because if we're just going to focus on the overt animus and hostility from the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. It's there are statements in the record where one of the commissioners is focusing and calls Jack's sincerely held faith as similar to the Holocaust and Nazism. Wow. I mean, these are just things that in 2018 and 2012, since the case originated, these are just things that, that are absolutely inappropriate from, from someone who's supposed to be an unbiased arbiter. Sure. And so for Justice Ginsburg and Sotomayor, the only two justices that dissented from the majority opinion, for them to say... No, this is still, uh, this, that was not hostile enough for us to vote yeah. for Jack is, is shocking and actually shows their personal animus against yeah. uh, free exercise of religion and their sincere commitment to the LGBT agenda and that they aren't independent arbiters either. Wow, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. Well said, well said. So what then What then would be our takeaway from this Masterpiece Cake Shop ruling? Or is there even one? Like, is there anything that individuals and churches, the Christian community can learn from this decision? Or is it just kind of a, well, it's, it's good for Jack, it's good for us for now, but it really doesn't do a whole lot for us in the long run? Yeah, um, I think we can be encouraged that at sure. least uh, Jack won, and at least the, the Colorado Commission has been... Uh, given a slap on the hand and said, you know, you can't do that anymore. I think this paves the way here in Colorado, hopefully for some meaningful reform to uh, this commission here, but then also um, other states can use this case uh, that way. And I think uh, I think that David French and some of the others are correct that where there is overt animus, uh, like the Washington State Forest, there's statements in the record in that case, that baronial assessment, that uh, the, the Washington Attorney General just, just made absolutely ridiculous remarks uh, to her that this may help uh, pave the way for some victories in those cases. But what it, what it should encourage us um, is that the fight for religious liberty isn't over and uh, that yeah. we have to remain forever vigilant to make sure that our government is fulfilling their constitutional mandate to preserve and protect our fundamental pre-political rights. I mean, these are rights that our declaration recognized are endowed by God. They're not just privileges the government says, we're going to let them have religious liberty, but you let them have that in the 1800s. Today's 2018. We're going to take that privilege away. Mm. They, they don't have a legal mechanism or a lawful mechanism to actually do that. So this case was good, but we need to build on that. And I would encourage anyone to learn more, uh, to go to Alliance Defending Freedom. It's adflegal.org. They're the organization that represented Jack Phillips presents Baronel Stutzman, does a lot of this wonderful work in religious liberty, and to follow all of their uh, stuff at, at that website there. They're also on social media as well. Yeah, they are, and they are they are a fantastic resource. You're exactly right. Thank you for summarizing that for us, because I think that really clarifies for a lot of people going, I don't really understand what happened. Um, and it is, it is a little bit confusing, but I appreciate you taking the time 
uh, to explain that to us. And I want to shift gears now. We're kind of, we're, we're, well, we're leaving the continent, if you will. Uh, <laughs> well, on Monday, we saw President Trump meet with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. Absolutely a historic moment in Singapore. And for me, at least, I think definitely a step in the right direction. But again, sort of the same thing with the, with the masterpiece cake shop decision. We've got people saying, you know, this isn't really, this is good, but maybe not so good. You know, we had Obama's interaction with Castro and we didn't like that. How is this different? Is it just the same thing as what we saw in 2005 with North Korea's agreement uh, to denuclearize the continent? Um, you know, we're not doing anything about human rights with this. The Korean War isn't ending. Have we legitimized Kim, who's just downright evil? So essentially, what it boils down to, I think Ben Shapiro said it best. He said this is either complete brilliance or a horrible debacle. And right now we really don't know which, which obviously that's the Debbie Downer side of things. But if you would, do you have any thoughts about those concerns? And then we'll look at what I think actually are real positives from this meeting, because I think to a degree... There's some merit to these to these thoughts of uh, well, not good, but I also think there's some real merit to what was accomplished, right? Yeah, yeah, and um, and, and and absolutely, with all due respect to, to my friend Ben Shapiro, um, who does you know, really great work at Daily Wire, I wouldn't put it in such uh, quite so black <laughs> and white terms. Um, yeah, because, because I think there already has been. I mean, just getting to the summit mm-hmm. was a profound historic win, and the fact that President Trump. Um, has been so America first and has said uh, to, I mean, and he's shown that that strength of America's yeah. uh, power to say we are going to have this, this summit and to actually follow through after after canceling and saying, right. you know, hey, we're willing to even, even back out. I mean, he's showing strength, he's showing leadership, and I think that his uh, display of leadership and his motivation behind that and the ability to actually harness the um, the powers that are vested to the president, unlike what Obama did, mm. changes the dynamic because his leadership orientation that is so focused on advocacy for his constituency, which is American citizens, I mean, that's plainly in right. the Constitution, right. that's something that is markedly different from what we saw in the Obama administration. And so even though we may not get a hundred percent of everything from the summit. This is the first step. I mean, I'm, I'm an attorney and I've been a part of, you know, a lot of different negotiations, whether it's in the criminal law context, it's in a, a civil context, um, it's, it's in court, it's in alternative dispute resolution. I mean, there's, there's a lot of types of negotiations mm-hmm. that occur. And most of the time when it's something that is that is such a big deal as denuclearization of North Korea. I mean, that's not going to be something that's going to be accomplished in a two-hour meeting. That's actually not a whole lot of time. I was on Fox News on Monday morning that right in advance of this, and they're going, what are they possibly going to talk about for two full hours of them in the room? And, and I highlighted uh, to, to the host and said, that's actually not a lot of time. And if you're talking through translators, right. there's so many different uh, points of concern here. This is laying the groundwork. I think what's come out of this is really advantageous to a continual dialogue. I mean, we have North Korea giving the United States president uh, his agreement and promise and affirmation that they're going to denuclearize very quickly. Now, in, in contract law terms, the president needs to have adequate assurances, has to have uh, some in type of enforcement mechanism for that promise. It can't just be 
um, you know, a unilateral promise without weight behind it. So we're going to see this continue to play out over the coming uh, days and weeks and, and see how that process is, is going to actually continue. We're just learning, you know, all of the reports uh, from North Korea, some more substantive things that are being reported in, in the days after the summit. But I think this is a great start. And if the mainstream media, which, of course, they are and they're going to continue uh, casting this in probably mm-hmm. the most negative light, uh, this is this is something that we as conservative Christians need to understand that we have an advocate in the government on the global stage. And right. just from that perspective, that is an excellent thing that President Trump has done. And I'm very hopeful after the summit. And I think it was a really sincerely good, uh, strong first step. I I totally agree with you. And I think that's the thing that people need to understand is that this is just step one, right? Rome wasn't built in a day. Like you said, negotiating requires different tactics than maybe we would like to see. We're not going to get 100% of what we'd like on step one, but we have to start somewhere. And I think it's really encouraging to see the president start somewhere. And honestly, it was kind of disappointing to me to see, like, you know, I saw a lot of people complaining about the the photo photo op in front of the flags and how we had the North Korean flag next to the American flag. And I get that to a degree. But at the same time, you know what? Our president got three Americans released uh, from North Korea that hadn't been done previously. And if a photo op is what makes that happen, I'm honestly, I'm okay with that. Because like you said, this isn't this isn't the end game. This is the beginning, I think, of a conversation and of a relationship. And like you said, too, <laughs> we now have Trump and Kim Jong-un having a personal meeting where he guaranteed the president that they would denuclearize the continent. It's This is a little bit different than when like President Obama talked about Syria and he's like, here's the red line. If they step over it, there's going to be consequences. Then they step over it and he's like, OK, we're going to back that line up. I don't think that that's President Trump's uh, modus operandi. I feel like if... Uh, if Kim steps out of line now, there's going to be some consequences. Yeah, and, and that's, that's absolutely been uh, been President Trump's MO from the very beginning. And you know, going back to what you said about the photo op and, and how much of the mainstream media has made of that and saying he's you know legitimizing a mass murder or something you know, like that. On one hand, they're saying that, but then on the other hand, they're saying, oh, President Trump doesn't know anything about diplomacy. And it's like, sure. look at the context <laughs> of this speech. We're not at the yeah. Olympics here, for saying out loud. I mean, we're on a diplomatic stage where the representation is from the government of North Korea and the government of America. So if you have the two flags representing that on the stage, that doesn't mean that we have to, you know, heighten one a little bit more than the other to show who won, you know, first place in the gold medal. That's not how diplomacy works. Mm. And even in a, in a courtroom context, which is inherently adversarial, meaning that I'm representing my client's interests, the opposing counsel is representing theirs. When you are going into court, that's where the class happens. But outside, in the negotiation room, it is a, a market almost requirement of counsel that represent their client's interests to be diplomatic, to shake hands, to 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 sit down to the table, not being hostile toward each other. Because, you know, President Trump and Kim, they don't, as far as I know, have any personal history where mm-hmm. they would have an interpersonal uh, bickering. They are representing nations. And so, of course, it's appropriate to shoot hands in a diplomatic setting. And so the mainstream media is proving that Trump is, is just, he can't win either way. And I think that that's absolutely absurd and it was more than appropriate to have that photo op. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you. 
And I want to I want to go back to uh, to one thing that you had mentioned a little bit earlier when you talked about how Trump had previously canceled the meeting and you talked about how we as citizens of the United States are his constituency and his first concern and how he has his focus on an America first agenda. Um, and you talk about in the article that you had in the Washington Examiner about about Trump sticking with America first, about how, you know, while some people might see that as egotistical or nationalist, it's actually a really good thing. And, and you, you'd gotten into it just for a second there. But I wonder if you would delve, uh, dive into that a little bit more, just because I think that that's another thing that is misunderstood often in our culture because, as you said, the mainstream media presents that as, well, this is a bad thing, nationalistic, that's, that's like Nazism. But it's not, really. Would you, would you touch on that for a minute? Sure. And, um, and it is, it's, a, it's a great philosophical concept for people to actually understand and take a few minutes uh, you know, to read this article or read um, my friend uh, Michael Donnelly, who's with the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, mm-hmm. in that article, I actually cite to his piece. Um, it's a little bit longer. It's, it's much more in-depth. But for those who are more philosophically driven, who want to read that piece, I highly encourage that. Um, it was very informative to me. I tend to focus much more on domestic policy, uh, domestic constitutional issues. And uh, Michael Donnelly is a global advocate. And so um, touching on this tension of the universality of human rights, meaning that, you know, we all as human beings have unalienable rights uh, because we are all made in the image of God, but how the United Nations and these global advocates have taken this term, human rights, and they've reinvented it and they've redefined it to basically mean that we as human beings now can rise above any authority structure, including governments and nations. And the problem becomes if we as human beings don't have to yield to legitimate authority of nations, then how does that change the landscape when we're talking about the context of the the North Korean summit? We're talking about um, issues like immigration, for example, when President Trump says, you know what, we need to vet people who are coming in here. And the humanitarians are saying, well, anyone should be able to self-determine wherever they want to live. They have a right to do that. Well, where does that right come from when we're talking about mm-hmm. uh, political nations and, and when we're talking about this class between what are truly unalienable rights versus what uh, the globalists are talking about this term human rights? So that's a really important distinction. But getting back to your question about um, then this whole nationalistic framework, we can then understand how people will... Uh, will object to, to Trump's America first, because if they have this globalist perspective that we need to have a borderless uh, nation, we need to have a one-world government, or no government at all, and some really extreme libertarians would say that, government's mm-hmm. inherently evil, we can all self-determine. Then when President Trump is saying, hey, uh, through <laughs> Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, I invested with the authority to advocate, to be the representative the chief executive on behalf of my constituency, my clients, who are his clients, the citizens of the United States of America, we the people. That's, that is who he is, he is obligated by virtue of his oath of office with representing. But there are some people who are his clients and there are others that are not. And that's actually okay. And I mm-hmm. would much rather, as an American citizen, have an advocate who understands that I'm within his jurisdiction and he's looking and and he's following the Constitution rather than having this globalist perspective that he's just this uh, this peacekeeper. 
gatekeeper and he's an advocate on behalf of everyone. Because then when someone may, who may uh, not have America's interest wants to come into this country and Americans say, that's not a good idea. We need to have a chief executive that understands his obligation is to us and that that actually is a good thing. It's similar to the church body or the family government system as well. Parents are obligated to, uh, to be responsible for their children. No one else is. And that doesn't mean that they're antagonistic toward anyone else's children or their, the interests of their kids and their neighbor's kids can't sometimes be aligned. But they have to, parents are obligated by virtue of being just the parents of their children that they're responsible for to make decisions based on the best interests of their children. And that's why they have parental rights and responsibilities. And it's the same exact concept for the civil government of nations as well. Yeah, and I, what's so important there, I think, is is for people to wrap, be able to wrap their minds around the fact that, like you said, when, when we talk on a world stage, and even, I would say, leftists and liberals in this country, when we're talking about human rights, we're really not talking about personal individual freedoms necessarily. We are talking more of a globalism type uh, type mindset. As you said, you can see that clearly in the immigration argument. And when Trump is coming along and saying America first, or they're saying, well, this is a nationalistic thing, yeah. It is, because that is his job. It's not his job, like you said, to be the world's peacekeeper. Quite frankly, it's not his job to go into North Korea or to Singapore, meet with Kim Jong-un and say, I need you to empty the gulags, and then when that's done, then we'll talk. Because as, as cruel as that may sound, that's not his priority. His priority is we the people, and his priority is saying, you know what, first we're going to talk about denuclearization, because, you know, you're kind of threatening to kill uh, people that I'm representing, and then... And then we can move past that to these other issues and make real progress on the world stage. But it has to start with him doing his job. And his job is America first. That's his job. Yeah. And, and you know, those get into some really interesting questions of, uh, you know, just war theory and what obligations mm-hmm. does the United States have to, um, you know, to go and spread democracy. You know, is that very baggage sure. as well. And those are really um, amazingly interesting philosophical concept. And for uh, for those who may be listening who are kind of going, wow, this is, you know, really fascinating, I would encourage you to continue, um, you know, reading along these lines, read some of, you know, Augustine's work, read uh, the Federalist Papers. Mm-hmm. The founders were these amazing warriors that, that just prolifically had these types of discussions about a key explanations. Um, Roger Scruton um, is another excellent philosopher who goes into um, to detail. I mean, these aren't things that we should just be looking at a five-minute, um, you know, mainstream media commentary to determine right. whether or not President Trump was ultimately justified in right. his actions. These come from really complex philosophical concepts that we as Christians uh, need to take our Christian worldview and understand that if truth is the foundation, we have to build every other subject matter, including politics, including uh, domestic relations, including global relations, including everything. We have to start with truth and then build that from that foundation and really understand what it is we're talking about so that we are consistent. That I That is the best summary I have heard of this issue by far. <laughs> so well said. Thank you, Jenna. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for being willing to talk with us about these issues and things. Like you said, that it's really, it's a lot more than just a little, you know, soundbite or a headline. These are deep philosophical issues, things that we need to study. And we have responsibility as Christians to know what's happening, to understand what our founders uh, had in mind, what they laid in place for us, and what they didn't. 
have in mind or lay in place for us. So I really appreciate you challenging uh, our audience with that today. Appreciate what you're doing uh, with Dr. Dobson and his family institute there. Where can people uh, find out or if people want to, excuse me, read more of your work, or like I said, you're on, you, you write for the Washington Examiner and the Daily Wire and the Federalist. Uh, are you also on social media? Like, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you if they're yes. like, oh my goodness, I love Jenna. I need to read everything she writs because I'm pretty sure that's going to well, be everyone well, in my audience. Well, thanks. Well, and, and of course, you know, you're absolutely right that this was, you know, the peak interview. So, of course, people are going to want to read exactly. more after this. Yeah. Um, so, I actually wrote a book <laughs> as well that's called uh, The Legal Basis for a Moral Constitution, and mm. it's a guide for Christians to understand our current constitutional crisis um, in, and in, a, in a context. And this is written for non-attorneys. Um, this is something that is a, a useful tool for anyone who wants to just get involved with understanding these concepts. And that's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, anywhere else that uh, books are sold. And then um, you can also reach me at the James Dobson Family Institute. Our website is dobsonfamilyinstitute.com. Uh, that actually provides my email address if you have specific questions. I am on social media. Uh, Twitter, I'm at Jenna Ellis, J-D-F-I, which is James Dobson Family Institute. Uh, they're on Facebook, and you can, of course, read um, any of my pieces in Daily Wire. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, Jenna. Appreciate you being with us. Be sure to go uh, follow her on Facebook and Twitter and, uh, and check out her work on those sites as well. We'll be back in just a few minutes. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas. And we're back for one final segment today on this version of version? Version. What is this? Uh, translate? No. This episode of The Friddle Show, we're going to end with this story, which I think is really good news for our nation. And, uh, and just, it's, it's, it's heartwarming. Charitable giving in the United States has topped $400 billion for the first time. In 2017, was the, uh, the, the findings according to the Giving USA report, which was released earlier this week, said that giving from individuals, estates, foundations, and corporations reached an estimated $410 billion in 2017. More, get this now, more than the gross domestic product of countries such as Israel and Ireland. The total was up 5.2% in current dollars from the estimate of $389.64 billion in 2016. Americans' record-breaking charitable giving in 2017 demonstrates that even in divisive times, our commitment to philanthropy is solid, said Aggie Sweeney, chair of Giving USA Foundation, which publishes the annual report. Okay. So the only giving that was down, according to this report, uh, was giving in areas related to international affairs. But otherwise, giving across the board was up in this country. The highest amount of dollars that have ever been recorded to be donated in this country happened last year. Now, I want to challenge you with this thought today. What is a dollar worth to you? What is your dollar worth? Sure, it can get you a Slurpee or a McDouble or two stamps, all of which are good things, except perhaps the McDouble. Uh, it can get you, the, you should, yeah, 
the Taco Bell dollar menu is far superior, but I digress. What is your dollar really worth to you? What is it really worth? What if your dollar could change lives? What if you could invest your money, if you could give your money to where it would be used by God and men and women around the world would literally hear the gospel, accept Christ, and be on their way to heaven because of your dollar? I don't know about you, but to me, the value of that dollar seems far more valuable over a Slurpee if it's potentially meaning that someone gets to go to heaven. And it can mean that. This isn't a what-if scenario. This is a you-can-be-part-of-this-in-real-life scenario because each year at our church, Liberty Baptist collectively gives hundreds of thousands of dollars to missions and missionaries around the world. And each year, we have the privilege of seeing how God takes those dollars and people have been getting saved, they're getting baptized, churches are being built, schools are being built, orphanages operate, and so on. And you might say, well, I don't have a lot of money, so I really can't make a difference. That's nice that you guys do that, but... I, I just, I can't help out with that. Well, guess what? I don't have a ton of money either, at least not by American standards. But when we take what I have and we combine it with what you have, and then we add to it what another family has and another family has and another family has, we're able each year to make a huge difference both here in Las Vegas and around the world. Next Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday evenings at 7 p.m. will be our missions conference here at Liberty. I'd encourage you to come out. If you've never joined us, this is your year. Come out, join us, see what God is doing around the world, and be inspired by what your dollar or your dollars can do. There's nothing wrong with getting a Slurpee. I just got one the other day. It has to be half Coke and half cherry, and that, that's, the, that's the only way to get a Slurpee. I, I literally just got one. But... When I think about the impact I could make if I bought five less Slurpees and gave $5 more to missions, maybe nothing or maybe everything. Because of all of the investments in the world, the only truly secure investment is what you give to God. Because really, it's his in the first place, and he loves to bless those who give cheerfully, those who give because they want to. So my question to you is this, and we will end here for today. What is a dollar worth to you? Join us for our missions conference next week and see what your dollar can do, how God can use it and has been using it around the world. It's Wednesday, Thursday, Friday next week, 7 p.m. is our missions conference. Hope you'll join us for that. But before that happens, hope you'll join us for church this coming Sunday, 9.30 or 11.15. We'd love to have you and your family here. Our address is 6501 West Lake Mead Boulevard. You can find out more about us online by visiting experienceliberty.com. Thanks for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place, on KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio.